Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. For those interested in additional resources or services, such as the weekly planners, online planners for Chrome or Outlook, keynotes, live training, coaching, or certification, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. Now, when you listen to an episode that resonates with you, we invite you to share it with your family, friends, and team members so that they can experience the same type of motivation and results in their lives. Also, if you haven't already subscribed, please hit the subscribe button. It works on Apple, Stitcher, Google, or whatever platform you're using so that you can get a new podcast reminder each week. Now sit back, let's get started, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to all of our Becoming Your Best podcast listeners, wherever you may be in the world today. We have a special guest with us today. He is the founder of the Freedom Specialist. It's a body-based approach to happiness, health, and well-being, something we are really interested in. And so Bob, uh, looking forward to talking about that subject, is also the author of the book, Built for Freedom and the uh, host of the podcast, Alive and Free. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Welcome, Bob Gardner. Thank you, Steve. I'm excited to be here. This should be a lot of fun for sure. Oh, well, I'll say. Before we get going, I'd like to share a little bit more about Bob. His body-based, no-nonsense approach to freedom has since helped thousands of people leave their struggles behind and find real freedom and happiness. And in addition, Bob's intensive power-packed retreats, transformational coaching, and online resources have supported people struggling with everything from chronic pain, anxiety, depression, PTSD, childhood wounds, addictions, and OCD so they can finally take their life back and begin to thrive again. And for the past 15 years, he's been incorporating multiple tools and knowledge gained from his years of martial arts, breath work, functional psychology, deep tissue release, and numerous other healing modalities to help thousands of people permanently put an end to their concerns. This is the freedom that they get from what he does. So, so excited to have you here, Bob, and, and to just jump right into this today. Tell us about your background, including any turning points in your life that's had a significant impact on you. Well, my background is essentially that I messed everything up, Steve. <laughs> I mean, I grew up as a military brat. You know, we, we moved all over the place. My father was a fighter pilot. I mean, we lived in Germany for six years. We lived in a number of other different places. I think in terms of formative years, there was a lot there. You think Top Gun, Maverick, that's what I thought my dad was. He didn't actually function that way, but I thought he did. So I kind of grew up in the shadow of a hero whose footsteps I was trying to fill. And because we moved a lot and because we didn't quite live on the airbase or with all the other American kids, we were often in different areas, I felt like I didn't belong. And I think that that started to build some, some internal sense of feeling like there was something wrong with me or that I was defective, always feeling like the outsider. And so when I was a teenager, 
And I discovered that among other things that happened with puberty, so also did sexuality come with it. And I discovered ways of using that to escape my social situations. So we're talking pornography that eventually became what was considered a full-blown addiction to pornography, and then chasing other types of sexual experiences, and then using drugs and other types of psychedelic experiences to try and escape this overall arching sense that there was something wrong with who I was, some deep-seated problem inside my life. And as much as I tried to fight it off, and as much as I felt bad for what I was doing, nothing seemed to be working. I was doing counseling, coaching, rah-rah seminars of every possible shape and size. I was trying to make enough money and maybe that would solve the problem. Or I was trying to have my wife be a certain way and that would solve the problem. And studies and everything else and 12-step programs, nothing seemed to be working. And then finally, my wife was about ready to just be done. One night she told me she'd tried enough and this didn't seem to be working. And she was ready to leave. And so there I was, suicidal. I was 32 years old. I was suicidal. I was depressed. I already had a hard enough time just going to bed at night, not filling my ears with tears. And in that space, now I was looking down the barrel of a gun saying, oh, yeah, and you're going to be alone for the rest of your life and you're not going to see your kids anymore. And so something in me kind of screamed, I've got to find a way out of this. So at first it was just willpower. It was controlling the situation as best I could, but that was unsustainable. And so I finally just kind of decided that, well, whatever I've learned, all the good things that I've learned in all these different programs, as much as they gave me great experiences, they weren't working. So I needed to find a way for me because even though I didn't want to, I didn't want to kill myself, but I didn't want to live the life I had. So I tossed it aside and I went back to all of these things that I had access to, to breathing and movement and posture and just basic understanding of the anatomy. And then I traveled and I searched out masters and teachers and I trained in healing methods and everything else so I could figure out this one. I started to piece together a way of understanding how my mind and my emotions are directly linked to my body states. And I figured out that I could start to train them in such a way that all of the mental and emotional struggles I was dealing with went away on their own. And in short order, the addiction went away and I started feeling wonderful. I also thought I was weird that it worked for me. So I didn't really mention it to anybody else until a few years later. I had a business coach that was like, dude, there's people struggling. You should help them. And, you know, I sort of clued in. And so I started small, started helping people only with the sexual addiction stuff at first. And then their wives started asking, like, is this only for guys? And it's like, no, and we're not really teaching about the addiction stuff anyway, because that's just like, that's just what got them here. That's not actually what's the real issue. And so then we started helping women and body image issues and food dependency and childhood sexual abuse and rape and then men with anger issues and anxiety and depression and all these other things. And since then, it's sort of blown up from there. Wow. I was just thinking, Bob, while you were speaking, our listeners are so extraordinary. They're amazing. They're people that are working on becoming their best. They're leaders at every level that you can imagine in homes and large corporations and small entrepreneurial organizations, schools, uh, teams, coaches, so it's a lot of fun, but every single one of us is touched by these kind of things that you're describing. And I know that this group that are participating, listening, are anxious learners and 
And I am excited as well to learn some of the insights that you've gained, some of the things that you've learned. And you've come a long ways to go from where you were to where you are now, right? Right, right, right. Okay, well, let's dive into it. Let's, let's gain some of your perspectives on this. From your perspective, your experience, your reflection, what are some of the root causes of trauma, whether from childhood or adulthood? And, and is that helpful to understand that? And if you understand that, what can you do with it? So I take a very different approach than like the common parlance is that trauma comes from some event in your past or some series of events or the way you were treated. And, and it's always pointed outward. Difficulty with that for me, particularly, was that I can't change what happened. So I could change my relationship to what happened and I can think about it in a whole bunch of different ways. And maybe that'll help some things. And I'm sure that that's the way that, that I mean, that has helped a lot of people over time. But I had to start looking, looking at it differently in order for me to really walk free of it, to get rid of all the reactivity that was going on when I thought about it so that I didn't have to sit there and be like, no, 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 think about it this way. So I did this with the word trauma. I did this with the word addiction. I did this with the word depression, with anxiety, with all the things that are diagnosable. I was like, well, is it really a thing? Like, is there a molecule of trauma that is somehow floating through my bloodstream somewhere? I was like, well, no, there's not one of those. So what are we talking about then? And I realized that trauma itself is a label. It's a common label. It's becoming more popular. People discuss it all the time, but it's just a label on a jar that's pointing to something going on inside the jar. And the problem with labels is when you put them on a jar, you can't see what's inside. So if we rip off the label a little bit and we go, okay, cool, what are we talking about when we're talking about trauma? Then we start to get into the, the stuff that you can actually change. So if somebody listening right now is going like, yeah, I had this really traumatic event when I was younger, I would ask them, okay, cool. All right. You think about the event. How is it that you know that it was traumatic? What is it that's telling you it was traumatic? Because if you were giggling while talking about it, you wouldn't be thinking it's traumatic. So what is it in your experience right now that's telling you it's traumatic? And they might point to, I'm having a negative emotion when I think about it. And I would say, cool, what is it, what does that negative emotion feel like? Where in your body is it? And then they'd start to get more and more specific, like, oh, my throat tightens or my forehead crinkles or I feel this pressure in my head or my breath catches and I can't breathe or I feel this, this pain or this bomb in my gut. I feel it's all physical. In the end, the only way a person knows that they're experiencing trauma is that they are aware of a bodily reaction to the thought or to the circumstance or to what's going on on the outside. That body reaction can be released in this moment, right here, right now. And if you train yourself to release it consistently, it becomes a muscle memory and then a habit, and then it's gone. So the first step in really understanding this notion of trauma is to, to bypass the pointing to an outward event. Those things did happen. We don't take that away from you, but you can't change that. I can't change that. Nobody can. Instead of trying to like think about it in a new way, go back to like the only thing that I'm experiencing when I'm experiencing trauma is this negative physiological state. If I turn that around while I'm thinking about the thing, then suddenly my brain has new data that says, oh, I guess I can think about this and not feel bad. I think I'll rather do that. And then quickly that instinct starts to take hold. And now a person is no longer traumatized by it. They don't lose any of the wisdom they've gained, but they lose 
all of the baggage and the weight of it. And so they can actually use that wisdom for their, for their own benefit instead of coping with the negative physiological reaction. Bob, have you found that this, this is actually a science? In other words, is there a science behind what you're describing, behind this trauma, the addiction, whatever the words are you label it with, and how it impacts people physically, emotionally, and mentally? There is a lot of research on the way that your thoughts change your physiological response, the way that your expectations there's an entire book like The Expectation Effect, where they're describing how a person's consideration, perspective, expectations of a certain event literally change their genetic expression, their physiological capacity to even digest food. For instance, there's evidence that indicates that people who are aware of gluten intolerance are more likely to experience something, a, a negative reaction to gluten. That doesn't mean it's 100% expectation, but there is a massive body of literature indicating that the way that we thought about, the way that we've perceived the world changes our physiology. There's a lot of data and science around the body and mind connection, about the gut's connection to the brain and its production of all of these neurotransmitters. So there's a ton of science behind it. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of practical, like on wheels on the ground stuff that's been done from what I've seen. I'm sure there's people trying things out in a way that's pieced it all together so that your average person can go, oh, yeah, from home, I don't need to have a bunch of fancy equipment. I don't need to like have a million dollar insurance plan. I don't need to get all the top level blood work and all the other stuff. I can actually just change my breathing, change my tension, change my posture. I can do these simple different things and suddenly my life starts to improve. That is not happening yet, but that's my goal. We'll get it. We'll get her done. I love it. And what are some things, why we're on this, because I, I know that you've thought about it. I love the title of your book. Let's hear the name of that title again. Built for Freedom. Built for Freedom. So what are some things that people could do to dissolve trauma, to create this transformational experience in their lives that you're describing and achieve lasting freedom? So the first thing you can do is start to be aware of what happens to your body when you're experiencing those negative states. And we don't have to restrict it to trauma. We can, we can talk about depression or anxiety or any of the other things that people are struggling with. How do you know you're in depression? How do you know your anxiety? Because once you know what's going on physically, you can change it. When you don't know what's going on, you're relying on a pill or an expert or an authority or someone outside of yourself to do the work. And sometimes we need that that extra help. But first, if you can see what's really going on, it's fairly, fairly simple. Imagine being in a basement, your kids have left Legos everywhere, and you've got to get to the bathroom. <laughs> okay. It's rough with the lights are out, right? When the lights are out, you're, you're reaching for information. You're reaching out with your feet and your toes and sliding your feet along the ground. But if you flip the lights on, the path to the goal is clear. So what I want you to do is flip the lights on, on your experience. What is actually happening in my body? And then start to change it. And it doesn't matter which way. I know there's a lot of people that say deep breaths are better and stuff. But to be honest, in the beginning, just change it anyway. So if you're breathing really like, <sighs> just take over that and make it bigger, <sighs> you know, or make it smaller. <laughs> it doesn't really matter which way you go because now you're in control of the thing. And so you start to toggle your breathing your tension, where you're tense, your facial expressions, 
some of these guys that have struggled with lust and a lot of sexual urges and desires that I've worked with, you know, I'd just be like, cool, just, I want you to get down on the ground, turn yourself upside down and see how easy it is for you to keep lusting after that woman. It's hard. Your body's not used to doing that in a different position. So it's dumb. Some of these things are really ridiculous, but you can start to change it. When you do that consistently, your brain gets information from the experience that says, hey, I don't have, I, there's another option. And a person only ever feels stuck when the options they have, they don't like any of them. You could have 400 options. If you don't like any of them, you'll feel stuck. You'll feel overwhelmed. You'll feel cornered. You'll feel caged. But if you have one that you like, you won't feel stuck at all. Even if you only have one option, if you like the option, you won't feel stuck. And so we have to give your biology a different option that feels wonderful. What that does is release a lot of energy in the system because you're no longer fighting yourself. That energy is needed to do the next step. It is metabolically very expensive for the body to think differently because you have to stop, you have to reassess, you have to gather more information, then you have to synthesize data instead of just going, no, I've seen that before, I know it's a tree. Go look again. All right, what else is it? That takes a lot of energy, a lot of, takes a lot of effort. And so the evidence and the research indicates that, you know, people who are depressed have a difficult time envisioning a depressed, uh, like a happy future. It's because of the only data their brain has is data from their body, which feels miserable. But if all of a sudden we free up that the body feels great, they can start to use that energy to create a different type of imagined future. Now that you do that, now go back and challenge what it is that you're seeing. And it's likely... It's very likely, as in 100% of the cases that I've worked with, with thousands of people, <laughs> it is likely that what you thought you saw is not exactly what happened. And that difference, the gap between what you thought you saw and what you thought you experienced and what actually happened in the three-dimensional world, that gap is where all of your opportunity is. Because once you realize, oh, the only thing that happened was this and all the other stuff was just stuff that I thought and confused with, with what was outside. Now you can let that go, and then you can move on. Now, well, this is critical to get straight, Bob. And I was just thinking uh, there's maybe two elements here that are really important, and I'd love to get your perspective on it. Some people are kind of stuck in these behaviors, regardless of why they're stuck, but they're stuck there. Maybe they kind of like it, they think, or maybe it gives them safety and security because change is scary. And that is, how does someone build a desire to want to change? In other words, to get out of these counterproductive behaviors and get into something that gives them freedom, gives them greater happiness and success in life. So that's the first question. I'll start. I'll just let's start on that one. How does someone build a desire if it's not there? They're just stuck. They say the same thing over and over. I have a follow up with that one. Because a person asking, how do I build a desire, already has a desire. So is this like a mom asking, how do I get my son to want to change? Or is this like a person that is like, no, I just, like, I have the desire, but I don't actually do anything. Which of those are we talking about? I have a, a friend that's been divorced a couple of times and hesitant to really seriously move forward at this time because she's kind of got her feet under her again, and she's pretty happy. And yet she loves the relationship. So I see that. And you said a second set of words that's really important. Imagining your future. 
In other words, you're replacing these past ideas with future ideas that can bring you greater happiness and freedom and success. So that's kind of one example I was thinking, but they're all over the place. I, I mean, you, you mentioned the one with being addicted to pornography. Some people aren't sure they want to leave that world. So I, I appreciate the thought you had on desire, but I think they desire to. You know, those kind of changes and imagining what your life can be. Let's take them each individually, because like if you're trying to help somebody else with the desire, like you, especially as a parent or a friend, you see somebody's in a place that is stuck and you're like, man, I could really help them. The first and most difficult thing that for me personally, I have found that I have to confront is it isn't my job to desire for them. It is their job. And the more that I try to desire, even for my own kids, I have six kids, the more that I try to implant a desire for their goodness in them, the more they resist it and stay there. And in many ways, I have had to allow them to not desire change until they finally get fed up with what it is that they're doing. And then their, their desire to stay where it is gets fulfilled. And they finally got what they wanted. I'm right here. And then they realize what I wanted maybe isn't all that great. But we too often try to protect people from what they want because we say, no, no, that's not good. You need something better. And their natural response is to be like, don't tell me what to do. This is my life. I want to live it. And in a trying to protect them, we end up crippling them and stay. they stay in these places a lot longer because everybody's busy trying to get them out. And they're busy fighting us instead of looking at their own life. So it's not an easy thing to do. My son, my second son went through a period where he was really struggling with suicidal thoughts. He felt like there was this war going on in his head and he was writing beautiful poetry expressing this. And I'd been there and I knew that if I stepped in and tried to fix him, it would only reinforce the notion inside of him that he was broken as much as I loved him. And so I just commented on his poetry. I'm like, yeah, dude, you want to see one from when I was there? This line right here is beautiful, man. Holy cow, that feels really rough. I'd love to hear more about this. And I just wanted to be with him in that place. My wife obviously had a more difficult time. Maybe she has more emotions than I do. I don't know. <laughs> but she, she had a more difficult time with it. To sit and watch her second son struggle with things that in her mind felt like, I'm here for you. I have so much love. I'm, I care you, about you. I can help. And yet he wanted to do it on his own. And that is his right. We don't get to live anybody else's life any more than we want anyone else to live ours. And the, the willingness to let somebody confront their own stuff without leaving them, but willingness to let them make their choices. That's a difficult thing to do. I'm, it may not be the answer in every case, but it's a dicey one. When we're talking about your own. So when I was really struggling with the pornography piece, I had so much desire to change. I simply didn't know how. I tried over and over. I was like desperate to leave this behind because I felt like it was some blight on me. I felt like it was evidence that there was, I was defective in some like a factory defect that had just somehow made it to the planet. And it just, it hurts so bad. And I prayed and I read scriptures and I went to my 12 step meetings and I, did my inventories and I did everything that they were telling me. And I tried really hard and nothing was working. Part of the problem was I was trying to do step 20 before doing step one. So often when we're like, oh man, I have this big problem. I need to go confront it. It was overwhelming for me. 
it was like too much to handle. I got to look at my past. I got to look at my thoughts. I got to look at my emotion. I go. And so the first thing I had to learn to do was do step one. And ironically, the only step I can ever do is step one, because once I've done step one, then I look at the situation and then I do step one from there. And then I do step one from there. It's good to know step 20 so you can figure out what step one is. If step one feels too big, that's probably not step one. It's step two. So I was in Arizona. I climbed up Camelback Mountain, which is like in the middle of town. And I'd heard people talk about the mountains, the White Mountains out to the east and some of the other ones. And it was the first time I'd gotten up to the top and I looked down. I was like, oh, those are the White Mountains. Wow. Okay. I can see how people might want to go there. They're kind of misty off in the distance. And I thought, if I had to go there right now from the top of Camelback to over there, I'd have to walk through the air. And that's how I felt like I was trying to accomplish getting over an addiction, getting over the depression. It was like, I have to somehow make it to the end point. So I lowered my gaze to the base of the White Mountains. And I was like, okay, that feels a little closer. That feels a little more doable, but I still don't know how long it's going to take. Am I going to run into a coyote or a rattlesnake along the way? How much water am I going to need? Questions. And so I was like, there wasn't any motivation in me to do it. I lowered my gaze to the edge of town and I was like, okay, that would probably take a few hours to get there. Then to the base of the mountain. All right. We're talking about a 45 minute walk. Then the next peak down. Okay. And as I lowered my gaze toward what would be the first step, I felt my own motivation and capacity to do it rise until I looked down and I saw a, a boulder right next to my feet. I didn't even think about it. I just took a step. When you're clear on step one, you will take the step. But too many of us are confusing step two and three and four with step one, and we wonder why we can't make the leap. By definition, step two is always out of reach. Oh, I'll tell you, this has been fun, Bob. I cannot believe we're at the end of our interview already. This has gone bang, just like that, so fast. And so before we end, let's give some hope to our listeners. What are some final tips that you might share with them that are hopeful? And I'm excited to read your book, I might add. <laughs> I can't wait. The tips that I would give you is, one, consider the possibility that there's never been anything wrong with you. No matter what your struggle is, you weren't born with it. You know, unless we're talking about a physical uh, deformity or some sort of like genetic thing or something like that. But most of what you're dealing with, you weren't born with it. You learned it, which means it's a habit you learn. And if you can learn to be miserable on autopilot, you can learn to be happy on autopilot. It's just a question of training. Which dojo are you going to go to? The place where you manufacture misery or the dojo of delight? And so it's just training. What entertains you trains you. So the question is, go entertain yourself with something that lights you up, that makes you feel like you're on top of the world, because that helps in training your system. Like, we need to do this more often. Number two, start with breathing. Everything is related to your breath in some way, shape, or form. So no matter where you're at, just change your breathing. And if you're struggling with anxiety, do a couple of big, forceful breaths. <sighs> 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 and then hold on empty. If you're struggling with depression, do a couple of them and hold on full. One brings up on energy, the other one kind of brings the energy down. Simple things like that. Walk and breathe and count the number of steps as you're breathing. Two steps to breathe in, two steps to breathe out. All of these simple things. You can do that between your office and your car, between your car and the grocery store. On your way to the bathroom, you can do that. These are simple things that don't take extra time and can change your mental state, even just a notch. And that much is enough evidence to start. 
Uh, so fun. So how can people find out about what you're doing, Bob? You go to thefreedomspecialist.com. There you can find an access to a PDF version of the book for like five bucks with a little uh, an adventurer's guide. If you want to get the hardback on Amazon, you can get it and just email us your receipt and we'll send you the, the guidebook along with it for free. No, no big deal there. Also, the podcast episodes are linked there. You can find access to our online programs, our retreats, everything that I've built so that you from whatever, wherever you're at, there is no place too deep to come back from. There's a way to start. And so whatever the struggle is, whether it's you or someone you love or anything, there's a lot of resources there on thefreedomspecialist.com. Well, terrific. Well, Bob, it's been a delight to have you with us today. And we wish you all the best in the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. You guys also, you know, you likewise. Well, thank you. And yeah, it's great. And to all of our listeners, wherever you may be, we're so grateful that you join us today. Hope you've got some ideas. I'm sure you have of ways that you can move forward in terms of greater happiness, of thinking about your imagined future. I mean, so many good thoughts on this today. And so we wish you all the best as well. And may this be a great day for you. This is Steve Schallenberger with Becoming Your Best, signing off. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Your Best podcast. If there was something in this podcast that you felt would be helpful for a family member, a friend, or even a coworker, we invite you to share this podcast with them now while you're thinking about it. Also, remember to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Now, for additional resources and tools, such as how to join our monthly peak performance coaching program, or how to get certified as a trainer or coach, or schedule a workshop or keynote, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. So thank you for listening and have a wonderful day and a great week.